Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this Lord's Day. And indeed, as we heard preached last Sunday, uh, it is a delight to be together with the Lord's people on the Lord's Day. It is a gift that You have given Your people. And so we thank You for this day, and we thank You uh, for this brief time where we can come together and to uh, look at Your Word and to be taught and to be students of the Proverbs. And we pray today as we look at the important topic of work and uh, laziness's effect on work that you would give us wisdom, give us discernment. We, may we not just simply be hearers of your word, but so also doers and so internalize what we look at today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so just as a really brief uh, review, and, and I, I feel as if I'm doing this review for myself as much as you, uh, feeling like I've, I've been away for quite a while, uh, that we looking at the Proverbs topically and looking at the, the topic of work in the Proverbs, which as we're seeing, the Proverbs have a lot to say about the topic of work, but also the Proverbs have a lot to say about laziness. That is not not working or not being uh, industrious. And we looked at in our first study, uh, what does the Bible say about work? And you may recall that we went back to creation and we saw that actually uh, work is not a curse, but actually is given by God as a blessing. It's a gift to us. And uh, so we're thankful for work, but we also saw that in the fall, work was impacted by the fall. And so we have this unique relationship with work in that it is a gift from God, but so also impacted by the fall. Of course, we could say the same thing for, about creation as well, couldn't we, and a number of other things. Uh, but as we come to the Proverbs and we look at the topic of work, uh, we're going to see that God, in fact, does hold work in high esteem and that it is something that we are to embrace Regardless of what uh, season of life we are in, uh, work is a good thing. And we then moved over to what are the characteristics of laziness because the Proverbs have a lot to say about the lack of industriousness in uh, men and women. And, and I categorized that into seven different uh, topics within what does the uh, or how does the how do the proverbs characterize laziness? We looked at uh, slothful, that is a reluctance to work. We looked at carelessness, uh, that is not being careful or diligent in our work. We looked at being undisciplined, an aspect of laziness. We looked at procrastination, self indulgence, specifically in sleep and talk and pursuits. We looked at self-deception, and then we looked at idleness. And so that's where we landed uh, at the conclusion of our last study. Today, what I want us to look at is what are the consequences of laziness? Uh, we can define laziness. We can even look at its characteristics. But what are the consequences of it? And... As you would imagine, the Proverbs have a lot to say about this topic as well. And so the first thing that I want us to look at is the consequence of poverty. The consequence of 
poverty, that is not a very good marker, is it? I was really proud of myself. I bought a new package of black markers at the store uh, the other day and never seemed to remember to bring them over here. But they're somewhere. I have them. Okay, so let's first of all look at Proverbs chapter 6. And this should be printed on your handout, verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man." All right, so let's break this down. This should be a a proverb that's familiar uh, to all of us. But let's look at what the sage is teaching. And first of all, he is teaching us to look at creation, isn't he? Uh, It's fascinating that he is turning us away from work that we might think of and pointing us to creation. And what specifically is he telling us to watch? The ant. And he adds here, O sluggard, uh, which tells us that he's specifically talking to someone. Now, we looked at this our last study, uh, but who is this sluggard? How, how do, or what do we know about this person when that term is used? Who is a sluggard? Well, quite simply, a sluggard is a lazy person. And it's someone who is, is characterized by this. So we're not talking about someone who uh, missed their alarm clock one morning and was late to work, and that's not characteristic of them. But typically in the Proverbs, when the sage uses a label or a title, it means that that someone is characterized by their actions. So in this case, he's addressing the one who is characterized as being lazy. Now, before we move on, does that mean that uh, those of us that aren't lazy, does it mean that we can't learn anything from this? No, of course we know as the, 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 the sage of the Proverbs gives us extremes. And the point is, it's sort of like Jesus teaching with hyperbole. We're given these extremes to teach us, uh, although it may not characterize us. And what are we to look at? What are we to watch? Or what are we to see, rather, in this ant's actions? What are we to perceive as we watch the ant on the ant hill and so forth? What are we to watch? Okay, we're going to consider her ways. And in considering her ways, he says this is, go- this is going to convey wisdom by considering her ways. And what is it we see? Industriousness, preparation. What's the example that he gives? Yeah, she's working without any kind of oversight. And so the idea here is what? 
oftentimes the sluggard is the one who shows up to work and doesn't do anything until they're told to do it. We would say in, in, in modern terminology, uh, he or she is not a self-starter. So they, they're waiting for somebody to tell them what to do. They can't really get anything done unless somebody tells them or directs them. And, and the sage says what? Well, the ant doesn't have a ruler. The ant doesn't have an officer over them. And yet, the ant is industrious. The ant prepares. And what does it specifically say that she is preparing for? Preparing for, for the winter, right? And, and so it uses instantly, as far as I know, ants don't eat bread. Uh, so bread is a metaphor here as it's typically used in the Proverbs as a metaphor. Bread is a metaphor for what? Food, right? So her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. In other words... She is preparing for a time where she is going to need to eat. Now, that's the imagery that he gives us, and that's a beautiful picture, and that alone should inspire us to teach us that we need to be industrious, we need to be prepared, we don't need to be told what to do, but rather we need to be driven to get the job done and to prepare for what we need. But before we move on to the second metaphor that the sage employs here, what are some examples for us in addition to preparing for food? Because I would imagine you, like me, uh, I... I mean, the, the closest that I come to farming is my little kitchen garden. And as Sydney will tell you, if I had to live on what my kitchen garden produces, yeah, it would not be, not be good. Yeah, yeah, I watched my cucumber vine die yesterday. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's not, not, look, not looking good. I do, however, have some beautiful zinnias this year. Um, not edible, but beautiful. Yeah, not yeah, exactly. Not tasty. They taste almost as as well as the black-eyed Susies. Yeah, um, but uh, that's as close as I come to farming, and so I have the luxury, like I would imagine that you do, is that I work, I get paid, I go to the grocery store, and uh, when I buy Dave's Killer Seed Bread, my bread of choice. It's got the awesome picture of Dave with the electric guitar. Uh, When I buy Dave's Killer Seed Bread, it's the same in January that it was in May. Fascinatingly enough. Remarkably consistent. Now, I'm obviously being facetious. In in other words, is we, in our modern way of, of eating and buying food and so forth, we can forget there is a seasonality to our food, Right? And, and so, how do I, in a modern era, how do I prepare, if my food is provided in this way, what are ways in my life, in a modern life, that I can protect against laziness and be industrious like an ant? What would be some real-life examples? Yeah, that's right. So one example would just simply be work to earn money to be able to buy things in a modern economy. And that, that, that would aid in that preparation. First thing would be like thinking about retirement, preparing for retirement. 
That's right. Yeah, that's, that's where my mind immediately goes, especially when you consider the statistics of how many Americans are unprepared for retirement, regardless of what that, that age is. And so I, I think about that. I think, you know, well, I'm, am I being industrious and, and wise and prudent and, and, and saving and preparing for, for retirement? Would be some other examples. <laughs> Are you talking about your garden or mine? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. If you couldn't hear John, he said, you know, also in this we see perseverance. Regardless of the circumstances, uh, the, the ant uh, perseveres. We might add here, uh, and, and you may be ashamed to hear me admit it, but, but I, in, in my younger years, I, I kicked a few anthills. I know, isn't that sad? And I, I, I try not to. I try to avoid the anthills and go around them, but I've, I've kicked a few anthills in my teenage years. And what happens after an anthill is destroyed? They come right back together and they begin to build it back. And so we see in the end a perseverance. But that can't be considered an anthill. That's part of the child's education. Don't you think? <laughs> or an adult's education. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm still working my way through uh, sanctification in terms of perseverance, right? So now let's move on to the second metaphor. Uh, that the sage employs here. He moves from the ant, and now he moves to what? Sleep. Now, here's my question for you. It says, literally, or he says literally, uh, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, etc., etc. And yet, what does Psalm 127 say? Psalm 127 is the psalm that says that the Lord gives to His beloved sleep. It's the one, you know... uh, uh, unless the Lord builds the house, the builder, the, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless the watch, Lord watches over the city, the watchman uh, watches, stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to bed, let, go to rest late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for He gives to His beloved sleep. That's Psalm 127, I think the first three verses. Um, so if, if the Lord gives to His beloved sleep, then what does the sage mean when he says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands is not good? What does he mean here? The Lord gives us sleep. Why is the sage cautioning us about this little sleep? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's about balance, isn't it? So first of all, just poetically speaking, the, the sage here is employing hyperbole. He doesn't mean that if last night you slept a whopping two hours and 45 minutes, that, and I hope you slept longer than that, 
but that somehow you should have gotten up and been industrious during that time. It doesn't mean that we're not to get the sleep that we're told. Scientists tell us that the healthy amount of sleep is somewhere between 8 and 10 hours. Um, I can't imagine 10 hours, but so they say. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so the sage is not saying that we're not to get the uh, adequate amount of sleep, is he? He's saying, as Rusty pointed out, that it's the indulgence in that sleep. Indeed, sleep is a blessing from God, but when it becomes a transition into laziness and inhibits us from industriousness, well, that's crossed the line, hasn't it? And so he goes on to say, Poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Why? Why does poverty come upon the one who does not consider the industriousness and preparation of the end or the one who becomes excessively indulgent in sleeping? Why poverty? That's it. It's, it's quite simple, isn't it? That's right. I mean, you've, you've heard me use the example, and I, and I know it sounds harsh, uh, but, you know, I, I had a homeless man come up to me one morning, and he asked if I, I had a few dollars. I don't ever give cash to homeless people. And uh, he said, well, the problem is this little red box over here is, is empty. And... Um, I, I didn't give any money. It didn't help out with the box. But as I drove away, I always have my wittiest thoughts after the fact, about, about 10 minutes after, right? And, and, and I thought, you know what I should have said is, is that, well, if you had used the money you earned yesterday, gone to the grocery store with that money that you had earned, refilled that little red box over there, this morning when you woke up, presumably there would have been food in that little red box, and um, so, I'm, you know, the, the zingers weren't available upon demand. Um, but the point was not to zing. The point was just simply is there's a life lesson there, isn't there? Is that we are to prepare. We are to be industrious. And we are to be diligent to be <clears throat> meeting or to be thinking about what we will need, whether it's retirement or whether it's groceries or everything in between of what we need. And so poverty is directly related to laziness, according to the sage of the Proverbs. Similarly, Proverbs 10.4 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So let's make sure we understand the imagery here. Uh, what is a hand here? A slack hand but the hand of the diligent. What's the hand? <clears throat> yeah, our, our actions or our work ethic, right? So, so the hand becomes a metaphor, and the hand, if it is slack, so what's a slack hand? Right, the hand doesn't, doesn't do anything. It's, it's slack, it's relaxed, it's not engaged in doing something. And what is, the, what is a diligent hand, or the hand of the diligent? It's employed, right? It's, it's doing something. It's in, industrious. So the slack hand causes poverty, meaning that, that we're not doing anything, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Now, again, he's employing hyperbole here. It doesn't mean that if you work hard, you're automatically going to be rich, right? This is where 
a Baptist church, somebody would go, Amen, brother, preach it or something, right? I mean, we all know this. But the point of the rich and the poverty are extremes, hyperbole in both directions, but the point's the same, right? We're to be involved, we're to be industrious in that which the Lord has given us to do. Number two, shame. Shame. <clears throat> All right, so I'm going back to the previous proverb. Now what I'm doing is I'm adding proverb, uh, the fifth proverb in chapter 10 to it. Proverbs 10, 4 and 5. A slack hand causes poverty. We already know what that means. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. We've discussed that. Now watch this. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. It's, it's fascinating the way that the sage here moves from the metaphor of the hand to now to a family relation, isn't it? It's teaching the same thing, but he now, we would say he's mixing his metaphors. Now it's, it's coming close to home, right? This is, this is my son. This is, this is your son, or this is you, etc., etc. But what's the general idea? Uh, what is it that this son does, to, presumably, to his parents? Yeah, they're ashamed of their son. Why? Why are they ashamed of their son? And actually, let me rephrase that. Te technically, the, the, the language here, we, we, it would not be that they're ashamed of their son. It is an outward influence in which whether they decide to accept or express the shame is not what the, the sage is saying here. He's saying that, that what is happening through the son outwardly brings, brings shame. So just, just to be clear. Uh, but in general... What, what, why is there shame? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And don't you... Right. And, and don't you think to a certain extent that... I'm, I'm picking on you because I think that's a brilliant comment. Um, don't, don't you think that that's why the sage may have now changed to the family relationship? We can keep it out here if we're talking about an aunt or the hand, but if all of a sudden it's your son or my son, now all of a sudden it hits home. And, and, and I'm the same way, I think the same way you did. What, what, what is it that, that I did as a father? And, and what, what could I have, have done differently to encourage an industriousness? That's a good point. What else? What else does this show us? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, one of the beautiful things of the Proverbs, to your point, is we could pick this up and take it out of the world of, of, of earning money and take it and apply it to other areas of our life. And, and, and undoubtedly, uh, that we want to be the one, for to your point, to being in the Word, to be industrious. How's that for a beautiful metaphor? To be industrious in the Word of God. Um, well, that's a beautiful thing. And it pays dividends, but so also not being uh, industrious in the Word of God uh, can, in fact, uh, bring, in this case, to stay with the, the term, shame. So one of the consequences of laziness is poverty. Another is shame, and, and that is a, a bringing shame to others. And, um, and incidentally, I, I want to pause here for just a second, assuming we have enough time um, Is shame a helpful thing? Is shame a helpful thing in a given culture? And and, and let me, as you're thinking about it, because immediately if I heard that question, I would say no. But but my question in this context is, because here's the thing that I, here's the thing that um, that goes through my mind uh, when I, I pull up at the number of different corners in Fort Smith and the panhandlers are there with the, the signs. You know, it's, it's like the one lady just passing through and Sydney and I were like, she's been there for four months. I mean, she's passing through at an extraordinarily slow pace, you know. And, um, but, but, what, what becomes curious to me is, point of discussion, is at what point do you lose a sense of public shame to the point at which you're, you're willing to stand on the corner? And as I've told you before, our custodian here at the church uh, tells us that a number of these people that stand on the corner show up at the bingo parlor where she used to work. Um, so, uh, you know, so I'm presuming that at least some of them are frauds, if not all of them. What does public shame play into a given culture, and is it a positive or is it a negative? Thoughts? Yes. Mm-hmm. They were basing it on that same 
Yeah. No, no, I like it. No, no, I think I think that's that that that's helpful. I mean, in in to to to, to think about that that there has been a, a we have sort of divorced shame from the. You know, so for example, I gave this example I think a, a couple of weeks ago where I had a Christian friend of mine who just all the time bragged about how little he worked. I mean, it was like that was his boasting. You know, oh man, you know, I'm killing it. You know, I'm I'm getting by on five to eight hours of work this week. You know, and and, and he said it in a funny way, but I really think he was serious. Like he excelled at not working, and uh, I'm like, I don't think that would have fl- fl- flown. Past tense, fly, fly, flew, flown. One or the other. I don't think that'd have worked. To your point, a hundred years ago, yeah. Yeah, I think there would have been a healthy shame there. Yeah, uh, Josie? Yeah, yeah, yes. I think it depends on what the purpose is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at uh, in Corinthians, the man who was in, in the sexual relationship, mm-hmm. they, they took him out yeah. for a time to remember yeah. uh, shame on him. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we need to be careful with our terms. We're, we're not talking about shame in, in the sense of, of, of ridicule uh, or belittling someone. Uh, uh, you know, we're all, we're all human beings, all made in the image of God. So I think that's, a, that's an excellent distinction there. What we're talking about is a, a healthy kind of, of, of shame uh, that uh, is... Uh, bringing about positive, yeah, the goal, yeah, yes. Yeah, Carl Truman, uh, and you may have read this, Carl Truman, one of my favorite Presbyterian uh, living theologians, had an essay on that just, just this last couple of weeks. And it was on that, the, the, the shift, where all of a sudden now, if we look at something and see it as, as wrongful, now all of a sudden we're the ones who, who should, quote unquote, be ashamed rather than, than vice versa. Now, again, of course, we can, we can lament co- cultural diversion uh, for, for eons, and, it, and it, it does this, lamenting cultural problems does no help, but what it does do is it shows us, and I, and I really appreciate where you took us, is let's look at how it was in the context of the writer of Proverbs. 
when he wrote this, the, the wonderful thing, if you've ever looked at the economy of the Old Testament, it is a beautiful picture. Some have, have labeled it socialism. It's not. It's not anywhere close to, to socialism. What it is, it is a form of compassionate sharing capitalism in which you have private industry, you have hard work that's encouraged, but also there is this benevolence that flows from that and a compassion that comes not from uh, I got mine, uh, you worry about yours, but rather I've worked hard, I've produced this, but we're all in this together. And it's a really beautiful picture, but to your point, is built into that culture was this idea of not ridicule in a negative sense, but in a positive sense, an idea of, of cultural shame. Well, we're probably not going to make it through today, but um, let's look now at forced labor, which sounds like everybody's job in college, right? Forced labor. That's a joke. Uh, the hand of the diligent, Proverbs 12, 24 says, will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Now, as far as I know, at least in this part of, of the country, maybe we'll narrow it to, to this, this county, um, I'm not aware of any forced labor. I do know that there is forced labor in the world, and I do know that slavery is alive and active in corridors uh, of, in different continents of the country. But to carry this into something that applies to us, since we typically don't fall into the category of forced labor. What is a general truth derived from this proverb? The hand of the diligent will rule. Again, poetically speaking, note what the sage is doing here. Who is the chief over the forced labor? Think about Solomon, who had armies of forced labor. He's the ruler, right? So the diligent one, meaning what? The hard worker, the one who's consistent, industrious, like the ant, that person will, will rule over the one who is put to forced labor. What's a general principle that we might derive from this? Yeah. Yeah, Joseph's a good example for the first clause within this proverb. He's diligent, he's faithful, even in prison, and God raises him up to be the, the second in command over the country of Egypt. What about the second clause? The slothful will be put to forced labor. Well, true, true. It could be in a sense of providing for them. But, but if we contrast it, because this is a proverb of contrast, what, what, and, and that is true, but in contrast with the first clause, what is this teaching us? Yeah. Okay. what their potential would be. Yeah. Angel?
Yeah, and I think that's a good point because what the sage is employing here in, in comparison, he's also giving us the extremes of both. So the bottom is forced labor. The top is the, the ruler. And so what he's doing by painting this picture of the extremes is he's showing us is that slothful, Sloth, rather, leads to and can inevitably be down at the very bottom of the workforce, so to speak. Huh? Yes, yeah, sub subordinate. But in, in many ways, everyone's subordinate under the ruler. To Angel's point, it by degree we see, and that's the point he's making, is we see the distinction in that by virtue of diligence. Number four, liability. Liability. Proverbs 10.26 Like vinegar to the teeth, smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Um, somebody help us here with what it means by vinegar to the teeth. Can we change that to like fingernails on the chalkboard? Yeah, it's the same thing, right? It's just an ancient, uh, uh, ancient metaphorical statement, or actually in this case a simile, uh, that's giving us this feel. We get that uh, fingernails on the chalkboard, vinegar on, on the teeth, and then the second is smoke to the eyes, right? Who, who wants to be at the campfire cookout when the wind's blowing toward you? It's miserable, isn't it? You, you come home, your eyes are red, you smell like you were wallowing in the fire, and it's not a good thing, but the correlation is what? So is the sluggard, and this is interesting, to the one who sent him. Send? Well, what's he talking about? Why would you, why would you send someone? Who does the sending? Where's he going? What's the picture here? Well, true, but 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 let, let's just look at, at the poetic imagery here. So he's sent, right? So so and a person of authority says, John, I need you to go there and I need you to deliver a message to that church. And I go. And if I am not diligent, if I am not focused, if I, for example, if, if for, here's a prime example. So I was on vacation last Sunday. We had pulpit supply. Our service starts at 1030 what message does it send if the pulpit supply pastor shows up at 11.15? I mean, right? That's the picture here. The idea is, is that that's not good. In fact, that sends a message. Now imagine if that pastor for pulpit supply had been sent by pres our presbytery as a form of examination or whether or not he was prepared to serve in the ministry. How many of you think a guy that shows up to our 10.30 service at 11.15 is prepared to serve in the ministry? 
assuming he didn't have a flat tire or some other circumstance. But he just you know, stopped for a coffee, didn't get around to it, shows up at 11.50. Nobody in here thinks that that guy's prepared. And in fact, you start wondering, what's going on at our presbytery level? Are we licensing young men for the ministry that aren't qualified? So one of the reasons why in our denomination at the presbytery level, when somebody's coming in for licensure and then later ordination, it is a grilling. Sometimes I feel bad for them. I felt bad for myself when I went through it. But it's a healthy process. Why? Because otherwise that person can be a liability. Can you imagine Presbytery approving a minister for gospel ministry and this church, let's say I get hit by a bus, this church hires that person. You go, well, they were approved by Presbytery. Everybody thinks he's great. And then on Sunday mornings, he's asleep. Huh? So that's the general idea. The other proverb is Proverb 15, 19. The way of a slobberger is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. Again, extremes, but the idea here is that the sluggard is not industrious, so there's always an impediment to their progress. Their big impediment is what? Their laziness, right? That's the hedge. But the general idea is the one who is diligent, who is faithful. And in this case, and we don't have time to go into it, it actually curiously uses the term upright. Uh, So the idea is, uh, in the sense of a rightness about them, is a level highway. Well... We'll get on to uh, number five on, our, on your outline and another section for us to look at next week. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you just how practical it is in the Proverbs. And we pray that as your people, that we would be a people who would glorify you by our industriousness, our faithfulness to what you give our hand uh, to work at, and that we would be a, a people who consistently glorify you in our faithful work habits. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.